Good morning. Please ride for the reading of God's word. This is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, found on page 976 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following this course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, so I'm a pretty nostalgic person. I don't know if that's because I'm a first child or what, but I'm a pretty nostalgic person because I had this affection for the past. So I love things like Facebook memories. I love them. I like to see them pop up on my Facebook feed, uh, in my stories. I used to have this app. I don't know if anybody else had this app. It was called Time Hop. And uh, Time Hop, it still exists, but it grabs your old social media posts and it brings them up on that day of the year or reminds you what you did that day, you know, like tw- today, 2020 one or something like that. Um, And so I like doing that. And and I love flipping through old photos. So it's one of the things I love about the cloud, which I don't understand the cloud, but apparently lets me look at old photos and watch old videos. And I enjoy that. Does anybody else like flipping through old photos? All right, cool. Like three of you. So three of you understand what I'm talking about. Once one reason I like to do that is I like to look through old photos and posts to remember where I've been because it shapes me now. It shapes me in a certain way now. So, for instance, when I look at the photos of Amanda in my wedding, after I have the immediate reaction of, who let those babies get married, I remember what it was like to fall in love with her in the first place. How much I loved her that day and my love for her now grows in that moment as I remember that day. I also like looking at pictures of when we first had kids. And after my immediate reaction of who let those babies have babies, I remember how little we had and how little we knew and how God provided both. And it makes me so grateful for where I'm at now. If you're a Christian, it's important to remember It's important to remember to flip through the photos of who you were outside of Christ so it can shape who you are now in Christ. And it's important to come to terms with who we were so that we're able to properly live as who we are. And whether you have a moment you can point back to when you first trusted Christ or you just remember trusting him from a young age, there's this great contrast in status between who you were outside of Christ and who you are in Christ. But here's the deal. This great contrast all hinges on what God has done. 
And the more you come to terms with who you were and how starkly different that is to who you are now in Christ, all because of what God has done, the gospel becomes greater and greater in your life and in your heart, and it's cause for worship and action. So what I want to focus us in on today as we go through Ephesians chapter 2 is that what God has done in Christ, what he's done for us in Christ, is cause for worship and action. So I want to look at who we were, what God has done, and then who we are. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Who we were is where we're going to start. Paul starts Ephesians 2, 1 this way, and you were. After opening his letter to the Ephesians with praise to God, and then he switches, we talked about last week, prayer for the Ephesian Christians, Paul starts to show us that outside of Christ, we were dead, enslaved, condemned, and alienated from God and others. Dead, enslaved, condemned, and alienated. So the first thing he says is that you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Look at, keep up, we have verse 1 still on the screen. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Young people, have you ever seen a sign that says no trespassing, right? Maybe you're hanging out with your buddies and that sign calls to you, it entices you a little bit like no trespassing, maybe we should trespass. Well, listen to me, that is actually a warning, you shouldn't trespass. It's a warning indicating that unauthorized individuals are not allowed to enter that particular area or place. I have a friend uh, who shall remain nameless who likes to trespass into abandoned buildings and into skyscrapers and take pictures on the top of these skyscrapers. Uh, it's horrifying to me as a parent that any child would do that. Uh, but he's a friend of mine. I love him. More power to him. But no trespassing is a way of saying you don't have permission to go beyond the line around this property. And sometimes that line is a gate and sometimes it's an invisible line. And anyone who does go past the line could face legal consequences. On one side of the line, you're okay. But if you go over the line, you've actively violated the law. In the Bible, God set a line. So he gave us scripture to help us see where the line is. He gave us laws and commandments, right? We might think of the Ten Commandments. And he said, if you go over that line, you will violate my law. So a trespass is an active violation of God's law. It's when you or I, whether unintentionally or intentionally, step over the line and break God's law. That's what a trespass is. It's an active violation of God's law. But what is a sin? A sin, on the other hand, is missing the mark or falling short. God has a standard of perfection which none of us match up to. Simply by being human. 
That is a passive violation of God's law. Trespass is active. Sin is a passive violation of God's law. In other words, outside of Christ, before God saved you, you actively violated God's law by doing what Scripture told you not to do. So maybe you lied and stole and cheated and gossiped, whatever it might be. So Scripture says that one trespass, one active violation actually makes you guilty of all of God's law. Just one. That's what James 2.10 says. But also, because of the sin of Adam in Genesis 3, all of us were born sinners by nature. We were conceived missing the mark and falling short. We were conceived in sin. That's what Psalm 51.5 says. We were conceived with passive violation of God's law. So Paul is saying is that outside of Christ, you were as spiritually responsive to God as a corpse is physically responsive to you and me. You were dead. It doesn't matter how good you are. In terms of the world standards, it doesn't matter. You were actively, I was actively, and passively breaking God's law. So we're therefore pronounced spiritually dead at the scene of conception. And not only that, Paul says, you're also enslaved to the world, devil, and self. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Like Bob Dylan famously sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Outside of Christ, we served somebody, or better, we were enslaved to somebody or somebodies. We were enslaved to three somebodies in particular. First, the world. When the Bible refers to the world, oftentimes it refers to it in different ways, but oftentimes it refers to the world, meaning that it's the system or society that's in rebellion against God. So in Genesis 1, the world was designed to humanize you. It was designed to connect you and for you to be truly human, connected to God, connected to creation, connected to each other. But since Genesis 3, the world in sin dehumanizes you. So, for instance, the world with secularism dehumanizes you by attempting to remove your soul's need for God. Consumerism dehumanizes our relationship with creation, making us people whose sole purpose is consumption. Racism dehumanizes us by claiming certain ethnicities are less valuable than others. This is the dehumanizing water those outside of Christ swim in. It's the air they breathe in without even knowing it. And such was the case for us too. 
and we were also enslaved to the devil, which Paul refers to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience are non-Christians. That prince, that spirit, is the devil himself. So Jesus has this thing where he actually shows how people are enslaved to the devil. He says this to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. Outside of Christ, people are enslaved to the devil and do what the devil desires. And the same is true for us before we were in Christ, he says. But not only that, look at verse 3. Among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. Let's stop there. Body and mind. You also are enslaved to self. Your sinful, self-centered human nature. And when we were enslaved to self, what we did is we quickly turned God's good gifts into sinful passions. We quickly turned gifts like sex, meant for a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage, is turned into lust, adultery, pornography, immortality. I mean, immorality. Money meant for stewardship and generosity turns into singleness, I'm sorry, stinginess and greed. Food meant for enjoyment and moderation turns into gluttony. All those things are good things. Sex, money, food, they're all good things. But look how we do in the past, we turn them into passions of our flesh. So instead of having sex with my spouse, I have sex with someone else. Or I lust after somebody else. I desire to have sex with them. Or instead of doing with my money what God asked me to do with my money, to be generous, to steward it well, it turns into me being stingy and greedy and trying to buy happiness. Instead of food being meant for enjoyment, for me to just thank God for the beauty of all his creation that comes together in this marvelous dish. I eat more than I really need to. Outside of Christ, we were enslaved to the world, devil, and self. Have you ever considered why people seem to be in favor of every sexual ethic but the biblical one? Have you ever considered why they believe happiness is found in getting the next best thing rather than in learning contentment? Have you considered why there's a draw to political tribalism and why that's so enticing rather than trying to work together? Young people, you ever wonder why everyone's just so into the next trendy thing? It's because outside of Christ, people are enslaved. If you're here today, you've never trusted Jesus, I need you to hear that from me. The Bible says you're enslaved, and you don't even know it. Turn to Christ, trust him, and the Bible says you can be freed. But if you are a Christian, you were enslaved 
So I encourage you, have compassion on people who still are. Please stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. Have compassion. Somebody who's enslaved to the world, somebody who's enslaved to the devil, somebody who's enslaved to self, and they don't even know it. But too often, the church is the place where we're pointing fingers at the world. Oh, look what you're doing. Oh, look. Instead of saying, you know what? I have compassion on them. And the best way I can show compassion to them is to tell them about Jesus. And because of the spiritual deadness and enslavement outside of Christ, Paul says that we were condemned to God's wrath and judgment. Look at the rest of verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Outside of Christ, you were from conception on a nonstop flight to God's wrath and judgment. God's divine wrath and judgment were not just punishments for who you were. They're they're actually what Romans 2, 5 actually says that outside of Christ, you were storing up wrath for yourself. Not only is that what your sin deserved, but you actually were storing it up. Think about that. If, If you're not a Christian, do you realize that that's what you're doing? You're actually storing up wrath for yourself by not giving your life to Christ. And if you're a Christian, do you realize you've been saved from that? Do you realize, like, are you excited about that? That you're actually storing up wrath for yourself. And at some point, it's going to be called in. And you were saved from that. And not only that, you were alienated from God and others. Jump down to verse 11, and we'll circle back in a little bit to the earlier parts of chapter 2. Therefore, verse 11 says, remember that at one time, You Gentiles in the flesh, Gentiles are non-Jews, called the uncircumcision. That was a a term to kind of like put down the Gentiles by Jews. By what is called the circumcision, Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, he says again, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. As a kid, I would love to go to the Ocean City Boardwalk and watch the guys making fudge in the fudge factory. And I would watch them through the window and I could see the fudge being made. But that's different than tasting the fudge, right? Like kids looking in the window at the fudge factory, outside of Christ, we were outside looking in. We didn't taste the goodness of God. We didn't taste his love and his grace that we would be able to get if we were part of his people. And this got really serious at one point in the temple in Jerusalem in Paul's day. In the temple of Jerusalem in Paul's day, we were actually like alienated. People were alienated from worshiping God and worshiping with the people of God and spending time with the people of God. So what happened was in the temple in Jerusalem in Paul's day, there was about a four and a half foot wall put up to keep Gentiles out of the sanctuary with a warning sign that threatened literal death 
to all Gentiles, even if you converted to Judaism, if you went past that four and a half foot wall, I guess people were shorter back then, so four and a half walls would it be, you know, wouldn't be that hard to get over for us now, from some of us. Even if you converted, if you went past that wall, if you were a Gentile, you would die. Now, that might seem harsh, but the truth is the Gentiles weren't any better in their treatment of the Jews. The old temple had literal and figurative walls that alienated ethnicities from each other and from God. And so we were alienated from God. We were outside looking in, and we were alienated from others by barriers we as humans erected. So the recap, outside of Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sin enslaved to the world, devil, and self, condemned to God's wrath and judgment, and alienated from God and others. And the Bible tells us to remember this. The Bible says, flip back through the old photos and remember this. Paul says twice, remember, remember, so that we'd realize how remarkable what he is about to say really is. Verse 4. But God. That's like the life preserver of a, two, of a sentence. Being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and, and seated us, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not, this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. And jump down to 13. Listen how this starts. But now, but God, and but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. These are the ceremonial and moral laws that the people of Israel were meant to keep. Jesus kept those for you. That he might create in himself one new man in place of two. One new humanity in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and, he, and preached to you who are far off and peace. Peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What God has done, God has saved us from sin and reconciled us to himself and others through Christ. Until we come to terms, look at me, until we come to terms 
with who we were, we can't really appreciate what God has done. God loved you. He made you alive. He spiritually raised you up and he seated you with Christ. He saved you. He knocked down the figurative walls that divide us from himself and others by the blood of Christ. And now, you're reconciled in him to each other to be one body, one new humanity who have access to God by the Holy Spirit. And you can't take credit for a blooming thing. God did it all. And he did it so that you don't have any right, I don't have any right to walk around like big men on the heavenly campus acting like we did something to deserve it. We did nothing. Nothing. God did it all. All he asked us to do is put our faith in Christ, which the Bible also says was a gift from God. And then you switch camps. You switch from being outside to in, from death to life, from enslavement to freedom, from the world, devil, and self to Christ and his church. See, the heart that comes to terms with who you were and what God has done to save and reconcile you is moved towards worship enthusiastically thanking God for what he's done. But the heart that doesn't, the heart that's complacent or apathetic or God forbid resistant towards this news, if that's your heart, I beg you, please ask God why. God, why Hearing this news, does it not make a difference in my life? God, why doesn't it move me to shout amen? God, why doesn't it grow me in love for you? God, why doesn't it make me grateful? Or, God, or even, God, why can't I believe that I did nothing? That I had a part in earning this? Please. Ask God why. Bring that before him. Ask him why it's not enlivening your heart, why you're not thrilled by this. Our natural tendency is to make salvation and reconciliation about something we did and do, not what God has done. And one simple test to see if I'm making salvation and reconciliation about me is to ask myself this question, this famous evangelism question. If I were to die today and God asked me why he should let me into heaven, what would I say? If my answer in any way begins with because I, because I believe in Christ, because I have faith, because I have right theology, or because I have a right view of the end times, or because I am a good person, I haven't grasped the truth of what God has done. 
If I truly understand, if I truly grasp what he's done for me and come to terms with what he has done for me in Christ, the only answer to that question should start with because God or because Christ. As the song goes, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To keep ourselves from thinking we did anything to move us from who we were outside of Christ to who we are in Christ, we need to worship God for what he's done by preaching the gospel to ourselves all day, every day. Because I'm going to constantly think it's about me. I'm going to constantly think it's something I have to do, that I have to earn this, that I have to make it about me. I have to constantly remind myself my salvation and reconciliation is not of my doing. It is the gift of God. So who we are. It's my last point. Look at Ephesians 10, 2.10. There is no Ephesians 10. But there's an Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And who are we also? Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Because of what God has done, we move from who we were to who we are, which is God's workmanship and his temple. God did what he did for you out of mercy, love, grace, and kindness. That's what verses 4 through 8 says. So that as you can be, as John Stott says, exhibits of God's skill and trophies of his grace. The trophy represents the accomplishment. When the Eagles won the Super Bowl, which I now understand feels like ages ago, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, the trophy represented the accomplishment. The trophy did nothing to be the trophy for the accomplishment. It just was a representative of the accomplishment. And that's exactly who you are. It's part of your mission in Christ to be God's living exhibition, to be his trophy. If that doesn't move your heart, that you are God's trophy, I don't know what will. You're God's trophy of everything he's accomplished. No matter your flaws, everything you don't like about yourself, all of your struggles, God says, no, 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 Evan is my trophy. He is my trophy. She is my trophy. They are my trophy. And as his trophies were called to represent God's accomplishments in Christ by doing good works. See, like, your good works do not save you. Paul will say elsewhere, you're justified by faith alone. But as James says in his letter, 
he says, justified faith is never alone. So you might be here and you're like, look, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I feel like I still struggle with the things that I was once enslaved to. It doesn't feel all the time like I am who I am now and that God has done anything for me because I still struggle with who I was. First of all, let me say, you're totally normal. That is what called being Christian. That struggle. Paul even says he struggles with it. If Paul struggles with it, then that, like, I'm in good company. The church reformer Martin Luther said a Christian is simultaneously justified and sinner. What he's saying that in this life, you'll feel the conflict between your sinful flesh and your saved soul. You'll feel that tension. Augustine, the fourth century, he would, he would remind us that outside of Christ, you were unable not to sin. You couldn't help yourself. But in Christ, you may struggle with sin, but because of what God has done, you're now able to not sin. You've been freed. So keep fighting and killing sin in your life because you have the power, as we talked about last week, to do it. You have the freedom to do it. You're no longer enslaved. You're free. And for some of you, even though you put your faith in Christ, you have friends or family who know who you were. They know what you used to be like. And they're skeptical about who you are now. But good works are the evidence of a changed life. They'll prove that what God has done in you is genuine. And one of the best pieces of evidence Paul tells us of a changed life is our posture towards the church and those in it. Paul says that God has made his home, his dwelling in the church. That's, you know, big C, capital church, universal church. It's where he lives, Paul says. Since for some of us, our picture of the church is too small. The church, we've, it, the, we've made it about like me and Jesus. Like me and Jesus is, is my relationship. That's absolutely true. But then what we do is we shrink the church. The church is huge in Jesus' eyes. He died for the church. God is so huge. God says, I'm going to dwell in the church. The church is where God has made his home, built on the apostles and prophets, with Christ being, holding it up as its cornerstone. The church is, Scott Swain says, the divinely ordained means of receiving and transmitting apostolic truth. What's he mean by that? He says this is how God has decided the church to actually receive the truth of the gospel and to transmit it to each other and others. In the local church, like Liberty Northeast, is where we partake in sacraments and the preaching of God's word. Sacraments of communion and baptism are the means whereby we have union and communion with Christ and each other. Preaching is the covenant engagement between God and his people. That's why we often pray that we would hear God's words. Because I'm hoping you're not hearing what Evan. I hope you're hearing the Lord and the Holy Spirit is taking that and implanting it into your heart. And if I had more time, I would spend a lot of time on the church because Jesus 
loves the church. But if God sees the church and Jesus sees the church is so important, it shouldn't be on the periphery of our lives. The church must be front and center because that is where God is. Do you think about that when you come on Sunday, when you gather with other Christians, that God is here? If you believe God was here, church would be a lot more important. And I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm just saying, think about that. And the church, when it gathers, shows the world, too. The other thing the church does, it shows the world how to be the world as God intended it to be. We have to do everything we can not to deliberately erect walls between each other over things like race, ethnicity, education level, economic status, politics, whatever. I'm not stupid. I'm not asleep. I know what's coming this year is an election, and you will feel the enticement to tribalize. And Jesus says, that's not showing the world what it's like to be the world as God intended to be. That's the world resisting me. Just don't, we shouldn't erect walls between each other over anything. We cannot be the new temple if we're acting like the old one. So what God has done for you in Christ, what he's done for me in Christ is cause for worship. It's cause for action. So listen, let's remember who we were. And let's worship God for what he's done to save and reconcile us. And let's start taking steps, whatever those steps might be, tearing down walls, fighting sin, encouraging each other not to make church the on the periphery of our lives and make it front and center. Let's start taking those steps to acting like who we are now. Let's pray.